copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We are beginning a brand new series this morning as we begin to go verse by verse, word by word through the book of Romans. This series is going to take us all the way past Christmas and probably into next year. So this is going to be a very long series as we go verse by verse through the book of Romans. And as you saw as the screen and the, the video showed that uh, the, 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 the point that we're going to be bringing out week after week after week as we go through verse by verse through Romans is the scarlet thread of redemption. Now, W.A. Criswell, anybody ever heard of Dr. W.A. Criswell, the great pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, who is now in heaven? He, he preached a sermon that all pastors dream of, a sermon that lasted for 24 hours, and people were there for 24 hours listening to this sermon, and, and he preached this sermon called The Scarlet Thread of Redemption Through the Bible. So he began in the book of Genesis and went all the way 24 hours later to the book of Revelation, and he literally preached for 24 hours about where Jesus Jesus is found through all the Bible, scarlet, the color of blood, and how the blood of Christ is found from beginning until end. Now, the good news is today that I'm not going to be preaching to you for 24 hours. Can I get an amen? Don't amen that. I was testing you. You failed. No, preacher, preach as long as you want to. No, we're not going to be up speaking for that long, but uh, the point that we find in the book of Romans is that if Paul were to have written a gospel, it would have been the book of Romans. You know, Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark, Mark, Luke wrote Luke, John wrote John. These are the four gospels that we have speaking of the story of Jesus, his death and burial and resurrection. But Paul never wrote a gospel, but if he did, it would have been the book of Romans. Romans takes the, the story of Christ and, and, and places it on the forefront, on a platter for us to understand what Jesus has done for us. And so every week we're going to gather together looking at four different themes. The book of Romans can be broken down into four uh, basic themes, how the gospel relates to sin, which is the first four chapters, and then the next section is how the gospel relates to hope and, and how we have hope in Jesus. Christ, and then uh, it's the gospel to the nations, that this is not a salvation just for uh, the Jew, but it's for the Gentile. It's not a, a white man or a uh, black man or a brown man. It's, it's a gospel for every single person, and so it's the gospel to the nations. And then finally, uh, the book of Romans ends with the gospel and life and how we can apply the gospel to our daily lives. And so I, I trust that you will be on board, and we're, we're getting ready to sell the ship uh, of the book of Romans as we begin to walk forward here in Romans chapter 1. Please stand in the honor of reading God's word. Romans chapter 1, begin reading here in verse number 1. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all these in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Father, we thank you for this word. Now, God, we ask that you will speak to us from it, for it's in Christ's name we pray, and all of God's people said, please be seated. This is the word of the Lord. 
as we begin to look at Romans chapter 1, we see two uh, main moves of Romans 1. First of all, we see the person of the gospel. The person of the gospel. As we begin to talk about uh, the, the book of Romans, we understand that the gospel is the theme of this book. From beginning to end, it's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so at the forefront, I want us to define what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. What is the gospel? Well, let's not turn there, but in your Bibles, if you're taking notes, write down this verse and you can look at, look at it when you get home. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, write that down. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Paul gives us the definition of the gospel. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news, the message that I once delivered unto you, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, and he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So Paul here gives us, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, the basic confines of what the gospel is. He says the gospel is the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is important. So many churches today and so many pastors today are, are trying to redefine the gospel. They say the gospel is collective. The gospel is, is consumeristic. The, the gospel is corporate. Well, the problem with that is that's not what the Bible teaches. You see, my faith cannot save you. Your faith cannot save me. The gospel is not corporate. It's corporate in the sense that Jesus died for the sins of all men, and, and anyone can come to Jesus in saving faith. Yes, Christ died for the sins of all people. Yes. But you see, your faith cannot save me. My faith cannot save you. The gospel is not giving a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. The, the, the gospel is not working. The gospel is not serving. Now, those are, are aspects of the gospel. Those are results of the gospel. Once I am saved and I have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, then yes, I will serve those who have nothing. I will give someone who doesn't have clothes, clothes. I will give someone water who is thirsty. I will give someone food that is hungry. That is a result of the gospel. But listen to me, friend, that does not save us. Serving and working cannot save. Only coming to Jesus Christ and through the blood of Christ can bring salvation. And that's the point of the gospel. The word gospel in the Greek evangelion, it means good news. The good news is that while we were once sinners, Christ died for us despite our sin. And he has reconciled us unto God. He has brought a relationship around. I want you to notice Paul. Paul, who was a man who quite arguably could be called the greatest Christian who ever lived, apart from Jesus himself. Paul, a, a, one of the wisest men, one of the smartest men, a, a, a man that was trained in, in so many different fields, very smart, intellectual Paul. A man who started more churches than, than anyone else. A man who has seen thousands upon tens of thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people saved, Paul. I want you to notice what he calls himself there in the opening pa passage of the scripture we just read. He said, Paul, a servant. Now, if you're reading from the King James, it says bondservant. If you read from the Greek, you write, find the word doulos. It's the word slave. Now, I want you to understand that the, the, the idea of slave in the time, the first century when Paul was writing, carried a very similar uh, connotation to the word slave today. A slave in Roman culture was actually beneath the animals. When Paul refers to himself, he's writing to the church in Rome, he refers to himself, notice, as a slave of Jesus Christ. A slave is a person who does not own himself. He is owned by someone else. 
I find it quite interesting that this is the word that Paul uses to talk about himself, to, to define himself. He says, I am not owned, I do not own myself, I am owned by Jesus Christ. Is that not interesting? In, in Roman culture, a slave was beneath the animals. A slave was, a, was half of a person. Even the, 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 the horrendous things of how our country began and, and we, we, saw, we, we brought people from Africa and we, we enslaved them and, and slavery is wrong no matter which way you slice it. Human slavery and human trafficking that we're seeing in the world today is wrong no matter how you slice it. But I find it interesting, don't you, that, that even though the Bible never says that we should own slaves, that, that we are all children of God, don't you find it interesting that Paul uses this word and calls himself a slave? You see, as we think about what it means to be a follower of Christ, we must come to the same realization that even though when we hear that word, we, 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 wait a minute, I don't want to be a slave to any man. I, I don't want to owe any man anything. Paul's not saying I'm a slave of a man. He's saying I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's where we have to come in our own faith journey is that I do not own myself. I am owned. I have been bought with a price, and his name is Jesus. He is the one who paid my sin debt. I go where he tells me to go. I share where he tells me to share. I do what he tells me to do. We as Christians, we are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses this over and over and over. And he says, look, it's okay. Because we once were lost, but now we're found. And our master, our God is never going to lead us astray. Follow him. Follow him, and he will make you fishers of men. Follow him, and he will do mighty, great, wonderful things. Follow him, and the blessings of heaven will protrude from your life. Follow him. Paul, a slave, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You will love the one, and you will hate the other. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be sold out followers of him. Then he goes on to say, and he talks about, he, he talks about the person of the gospel, and he, he talks about him being the promised one. The promised one. Look, look, look back at your Bible, verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who has been descended from David. This is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You see, this is not a new invention. This is not something Paul dreamt up. The, the gospel of Jesus, Jesus had been promised from the very beginning, right? In the book of Genesis chapter 3, right when the man fell, right when Adam and Eve fell, a promise came. That the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman. The only way that a woman can have a seed is through a virgin birth. And so from Genesis chapter 3, from the very beginning, God gave us a picture of what he was going to do thousands of years later in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the love of God. The salvation of God. The gospel of God. It was in his heart before time even began. Before you were born, God loved you. Before you were even thought of, before your great-grandparents were even thought of, God knew you and he loved you. Before the foundation of the world, he knew that Jesus Christ was going to come and take away the sins of mankind. As you read the Old Testament, you discover that Jesus Christ is found in all of the scripture. 
When Christ, after his resurrection, he was walking with a couple of disciples and he had not yet revealed himself to them. And, and he, the Bible says in, in, in the Gospel of John that he opened the scripture and beginning with Moses and the prophets, that means beginning with the law and the prophets, he began to share with them and show them in all of the scripture where he was of himself. Adrian Rogers, the great pastor of the Bellevue Baptist Church who uh, is in heaven now, he, he said describing Jesus and the Old Testament, he wrote this. He said, Christ is the seed of the woman, which we already talked about in Genesis 3.15, we're told will crush the head of Satan. He says that in the book of Exodus, we find the story of the Passover lamb and Christ is a sacrificial lamb given to us. In Leviticus, we see the high priest making sacrifices for the people and Christ, according to Hebrews, has become our great high priest. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses prophesied of a prophet that would come that would be greater than himself. Jesus is that great prophet. In the book of Joshua, Joshua met the captain of the Lord's host, and the captain of the Lord's host was none other than Jesus Christ. In the book of Judges, the leaders were judged and, and delivered God's people, each of them typifying the Lord. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, in the book of Ruth, his, his inheritance, the kinsman redeemer, is a picture of Jesus. David, the anointed one, pictures Jesus. Jesus is described as the son of David. In the books of First and Second Samuel, the king was being enthroned. The entire scene is descriptive of the Lord Jesus. The books of Kings, the First and Second Kings, is a depiction of the glory of God filling the temple. The chronicles are describing the glorious king, the king that is coming, both referring to Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Ezra depicts Jesus as the Lord of our fathers. Job says that a redeemer is coming. Esther offers a picture of Christ interceding for his people. Christ appears time after time in the Psalms and Proverbs, including when David describes him as the great shepherd. Isaiah foretells of his coming birth. Jeremiah reveals that he will be acquainted with sorrows. Joel describes him as the hope of all people. Amos tells us that Jesus is the judge of all nations. Obadiah warns of the coming eternal kingdom. Jonah offers a picture of Jesus being buried for three days, but then coming back to life and preaching repentance. Zephaniah says that he will be the king over Israel. Zechariah is the prophet who speaks of uh, Jesus riding on a colt. Malachi is the one who calls him the son of of righteousness can't you see Jesus from the beginning to the end no matter how you cut the Bible you find Jesus Jesus is there the entire Old Testament points us to toward Jesus a Savior if you miss that you've missed the entire point of the scripture Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the one promised beforehand in the scripture that Paul writes here in Romans chapter 1. But it goes even further. He says there in verse 3, he is also of the descendant of David. We have on the screen 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 15. Notice what uh, is written here. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, speaking of, of David, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. In your house, David... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The, the lineage of King David, the, 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 the kingdom that will be established and will last forever. Who instituted that? Well, it was instituted in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of God. He, uh, as the son of David, you go back to Matthew 1 and Luke 3 and look at the genealogy. Both his mother Mary and his stepfather Joseph, both from the line and the lineage of King David. He is the promised one. And then he says in verse 4, he is the powerful one. Look back at verse 4. 
Not only is he the promised one, he's the powerful one. Not only is he the son of man, but he's also the son of God. Not only is he 100% man, but he's also 100% God. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit, the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this is dealing with the deity of Jesus, the powerful works, the wonders of his life, the, the miracles that Jesus performed. You see, Jesus could do things that you and I could not do. Jesus turned water into wine. He was able to heal the sick, make the lame walk, the deaf to hear, the blind to see. He, he healed the leper's sores. Jesus had power over the supernatural. Jesus had power over the natural, the over nature. He, he is the creator. He created nature. He created wind. He created the sea. So when he said to the sea, be still, it stood still. He is the creator. He is the founder. And so when he speaks, everything listens. There were times when he walked on the water. He caused the waves to be silent. He was declared to be the son of God. When Jesus came at the baptism and, and after his baptism, the, the, the heavens opened up and a voice came and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. God himself called Jesus the son. He was declared to be the son of God at the resurrection. Let me ask you, what validates Jesus? What validates the deity of Jesus Christ? What makes our gospel and our, 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 our hope lively? What is it that, that makes our faith mean something? What sinks the teeth into what it is that we believe? Well, there's only one thing. It's the empty tomb. You see, if our Savior was dead, then we don't have a living hope. We have a dead hope. If, if Jesus is still in the tomb, then what in the world are we doing here today? You see, a, a dead man can offer no hope and no life. Only a living man can offer life. Dead begets dead. Life begets life. Jesus, what we just saw in the baptism of those, those five individuals, they, they, they are coming forward and saying, I once was dead, but now I'm alive. Who made them alive? Who made them alive? Not you, not me, only our living Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke life into them. And Jesus' resurrection is what validates the gospel. It's what makes credible the witness. You see, only Jesus deals with death. Only Jesus conquered death. Go to any other world religion and you can go and see the tomb where those religious leaders are found. Only Jesus deals with life. Jesus is alive by the power of the resurrection. Ours is not a dead faith. It's not a dead message. No. And the Spirit testifies to this. This is what he says. The Holy Spirit testifies to this. Verse 4, the Holy Spirit comes and, and testifies to the power of the resurrection. Once you realize and you come to the place in the, that you need a Savior, you confess your sin, you repent of your sin, you invite Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life. We tell the little children to ask Jesus into your heart. Well, the Bible, the, the, the better understanding of that is you're asking the Holy Spirit to come and live in your life. Ephesians chapter 1 says the Holy Spirit living inside of your life is testimony to the fact that you are a believer in Christ. You see, that there are those that are lost and that those that are saved. The difference is that one person has the Holy Spirit living in their life, the other person does not. The person that is lost does not have the Spirit of God. Romans 1 verse 4 says the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness comes and testifies to the fact of salvation, of the gospel. Testifies of Jesus. The person of the gospel. Now let's see the purpose. What, what's the purpose of the gospel? Why the gospel? We'll look back at verse 5. He tells us why. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith 
Now, if you, if you underline in your Bible, I want you to underline that phrase, the obedience of faith. Underline that phrase. For the sake of his name among all the nations. Why the gospel? What's the purpose? Well, the gospel teaches us two principles that are opposite ends of the same coin. It's like heads and tails. It's obedience and faith. Verse 5 tells us that it's through Jesus, through the gospel, through the death and resurrection that brings about obedience and faith. Obedience and faith. Keep your finger there in Romans 1 and turn with me to Romans 16, the last chapter of the book of Romans. You say, well, pastor, I thought it was going to take us until the end of the year to get to Romans 16. Oh, ye of little faith. Romans 16. Let's look at verse 26. Romans 16, 26. Underline this verse. But has now been disclosed. Are you there? Say amen if you're there. All right, Romans 16, 26, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So now wait a minute, that sounds awful familiar. That sounds like the verse we just read. Well, it's the exact same verse we just read in Romans chapter 1. You see, what, what God is doing through Paul and the inspiration of the Spirit, he, he's putting the bookends of the gospel here. He's putting the, the purpose of the gospel at the beginning of Romans and then at the end of Romans. This is not a mistake that he places the purpose, that obedience and faith are a result, the purpose of the gospel of Jesus. He is reminding us of, of this, obedience and faith, obedience and faith, obedience and faith. Let's deal first of all with obedience. You cannot have salvation without obedience. Look at Romans 6, 17. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Notice what he says. Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So here's the point. Here's an interesting concept that we'll get into when we get to Romans 6. That, you, that every person is a slave. Whether you like it or not, we're all slaves. He just said in Romans 6, 17. He said, once you were slaves to sin. But now through your obedience, you are no longer a slave to sin. You have been bought. You have been purchased. By whom? Well, God. Through who? Jesus. You see, once we were slaves of sin, but when you come to through obedience, through obedience, you no longer are a slave to sin. Now you're a slave of Christ. No longer are you dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you are alive in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.17 talks about how it's through obedience. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I believe we have this verse on the screen for you. 1 Peter chapter 1. Notice what he says, verse 22. Having purified your souls... By your obedience. You see that? Purifying your souls by your obedience. How, how is it that we're saved? How is it that our souls are purified? Well, through obedience. Hebrews 5.9 says that it's the source of salvation to those who obey. Salvation comes from obedience. That's true, right? I mean, the basic definition of, of sin is disobedience. So if sin is disobedience, then salvation must be obedience. If you're a Christian here today, there was a time that you were disobedient to God. Romans 8, 7 says, the carnal mind, unsaved or depraved mind, is enmity, it's against God. Maybe you are a respectable sinner. Maybe you weren't like some of those that, that, that came out of drugs and alcohol. Can I tell you, that's my testimony. 
I have never one day in my life been drunk. I have never one day in my life been high. I, I, I never had premarital sex before I was married. I, I can stand before you and tell you that, that while I didn't do those things, I'm still a respectable sinner. I, I didn't do the big things. I never killed anybody, but I was still a sinner. Now, I, I tell my wife, my wife was saved at the age of five. Our daughter, Abigail, was saved uh, just a few months ago at the age of five. And I, I tell them all that I, I wish that I was five when I received Christ. It took me until I was 17. You know, it, it takes some of us a little bit longer to get it, right? But I wish I, I wish I was five years old. But what I hear from people who were saved early in life, they say, well, I don't have a great testimony. I, I wasn't saved out of drugs. I wasn't saved out of alcohol. I wasn't saved out of this. I wasn't saved out of that. I wasn't in jail and, and came to know Christ and, and now I'm a preacher. I, I, I didn't have that kind of testimony. Praise God that you don't. Dear friends, you've got a great testimony. Your testimony is that despite all of the things that you didn't do, you were still in need of a Savior. What was the original sin? Did Adam and Eve murder somebody? Was Adam and Eve drunkards? Were they shooting stuff up in their veins? Were they snorting stuff up their noses? What was the original sin? Original sin was disobedience. You see, Adam and Eve, they, they didn't do any big sins. Their sin was disobedience. You see, no matter if it's on our level, whether it's a big sin, all sin is, is big to God, right? But we, we have a way of, of, of saying, well, lying's not as bad as, as, as adultery, and, and, and we, we put all these caveats, but, but with God, sin is sin. And what I want you to realize is that your sin and my sin results in death. But God, but God loved us despite our sin, and he sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior and Lord. And he's called us to obedience. He's called us to obedience. Then on the flip side of that same coin, not only do you have obedience, but you also have faith. We are saved by faith. We are saved by obedience of faith, as Paul says here in Romans 1.5. We are saved by obedience of faith. This doesn't mean that we can work our way to heaven. Dear friend, please don't understand. I, I'm not saying that obedience is work. No, I, you, you cannot work your way into heaven. You cannot do enough good things to earn favor of God. If you could, the cross was a colossal mistake. If you could earn your, if you can get into heaven any other way but the cross, then why in the world would God send his son, his only son, to die for you? No, there's only one way to heaven, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Obedience by faith doesn't mean that you can work your way into heaven. However, you can't be disobedient and remain faithful. Disobedience is doubt. Doubt is the opposite of faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. You cannot have disbelief and also be faithful. Understand this as well, that faith is not knowledge. We, we think, well, I, I know that Jesus died for me. I, I know it. Faith, faith is not knowledge. The devil knows that Jesus died, and the devil's not saved. Faith is more than knowledge. Faith is supernatural. Faith is what we are saved by. It's faith that we are sustained by. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the things longed for. It's the evidence of things unseen. Faith is that I'm going to receive this even though I can't see it, even though it naturally it doesn't make any sense. It does not make any sense that a man dying on a cross can save us of our sins 2,000 years ago. That makes no logical sense. But by faith, when we receive it, you understand that that makes sense. 
that a man paid our penalty, a penalty that you and I could not pay. Faith is a journey. Faith is a journey, not an experience. You know, I'm from the hills of Tennessee, the mountains of Tennessee, and I, I, I love going up to the mountains and, and being up in the mountains. At the very top of the mountain, you can look down and you can see the cities, you can see the light. You know, you can learn a lot of things from the mountaintops, but you can't learn everything in the mountains. You can learn a lot of things on the mountaintops, but you can't learn everything from the mountains. Some things you have to learn down in the valley. There are certain things that you're not going to get when you're up on top of the world, but there are certain things that, that you need to know. There are certain things that can't be taught when, 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 when everything's going good in your life. There are certain things that, that God's got to bring you low. There are certain times that God has to bring a test into your life. There are certain times that God has to take your faith and, and begin to squeeze it just a little bit in order to teach us something. You see, there's not everything that we can learn from the mountains. Some things are better learned down in the valleys. Faith is a journey, not an experience. Our faith must be tested. A faith that is not tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. When they build cars, they test them. All these new cars that are coming out, you realize that they have gone through, the, the 2018 models are already invented, right? You, you understand that, that, that the 2000, they're ready with those, and, and now from, from now until they release them a year or two years later, all they're doing is testing them, crash testing them, making sure that the, 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 the uh, airbags release when they're supposed to, make sure that the, the wheels can stand up, the axles can stand up to, to all the pressure that the batteries won't blow up, which is what happened to us three weeks ago with our neighbor in our house catching on fire. Th that was not supposed to happen. They were supposed to test for those things. But you see, what we realize is the manufacturer can test for any possible scenario. They want to make sure that, that every possible scenario is covered in these, these tests. Because once we release it to the market, we don't want an incident. We don't want anyone getting hurt. We don't want houses to get burned out. We, we want everything to function the way it possibly can. But car manufacturers realize this, that you can test and test and test and test. You can prepare and prepare and prepare and prepare. But there's going to come a time when you are placed in a situation that that car has not been tested and it's going to be tested. And it's going to fail. And it's going to go back to the manufacturer and they've got to issue a recall. Dear Christian, there are times in life that you can prepare. You can be ready. You can be willing. You can be living by faith. And, and faith is a journey, not an experience. And you can be trusting the Lord. Everything can be going good. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, didn't expect it. Oh, it's cancer. Oh, she left me. Oh, he's dead. All of these, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. Can I tell you that there are times that God lets us live on the mountains, but often things are better learned down in the valley. And when we're down in the valley, it's where we, our, our faith is tested. Don't buy into the lie that just because bad things are happening to me that I'm outside of the will of God. Just because bad things are happening, now you may be outside of the will of God, but just because bad things, excruciating things, hurtful things happen does not necessarily mean you're out of the will of God. Do you believe that Jesus was in the will of God when he went to the cross? Do you believe that Job was in the will of God when he, well, you don't have to believe it, the scripture tells us, right? 
God says, behold, my servant Job, a, a upright man, a man who fears me, a man who is noble. You see, just because bad things happen doesn't mean as a result of something that you have done. God allows tests to come into your life, and sometimes God issues a recall on our faith because he sees something there that is not resembling his son Jesus. And he allows us to go through tests and trials in order to strengthen us for the journey ahead. You see, that's the purpose. It's faith and obedience. Faith is not an experience. Faith is a journey. And, and as you trust the Lord, as you believe the Lord, the goal is to grow in faith. Faith has to be tested. Pastor, how do I handle doubt? How can I be saved and still battle depression? Understand that faith isn't the only thing living inside of you. There is a daily struggle between faith and doubt. Faith and fear, faith and depression. Every single person in here, everybody watching online right now, every one of us deals with some measure of doubt and, 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 and uh, fear and depression. Every single one of us. Different levels, but we all deal with it. How do we reconcile these things with faith? How is it that we are to live by faith? How is it that we are to, to, to grow? And, and the, the point of the Christian life is not to live in fear. Not to live in anxiety. Jesus said, what, what are you worried about? God provides the holes for the foxes. He provides the nests for the birds. He, he clothes the lilies of the valley. Don't you believe he's going to take care of you, his greatest creation? There's nothing to worry about. We begin to live by faith. And it's oftentimes, listen now, it's oftentimes through the tests and the trials that God allows us to go through that teaches us to rely upon him. It's through the valley experiences. Think back to your valley experiences. It's through the valley of ex experiences that, that you grow closer and closer and closer to the, the Lord. And he chips away at that depression. He chips away at that fear. He chips away at that anxiety. And he become, you become more and more and more like him. It's a faith journey. It's not, you're not going to be fixed in 10 years. You're not going to be fixed tomorrow. This is a faith walk. It's a faith journey. Paul said, work out your faith with fear and trembling. Paul, at the end of his life, he, he finally said, Timothy, I've run my course. I've finished my, my, the race. I've kept the what? Faith. I've kept the faith. Timothy, I've kept the faith. Now laid before me is the crown of righteousness. Paul, you mean to tell me that you didn't get a crown of righteousness for living in those jail cells all those years? No. Paul, you mean to tell me that you didn't get a crown of righteousness for seeing all those people saved? No. Paul, you're telling me that you didn't get a crown of righteousness for all those churches you planted and all those miles you traveled for Jesus? No. Paul says that when he came to the end of his life, when he came to the end of his faith journey, that is when he received the crown of righteousness. You see, faith is a journey. Christian, we are to walk by faith. We are to worship by faith. We are to work by faith. As you go through the mountains and the valleys, the ups and the downs, I call you, I challenge you, allow the faith and obedience to be there. And then finally, he goes into our faith and obedience. It, it, it goes into us sharing the good news to go into all the nations and to share with somebody. It's not simply enough for us to receive it. If God simply saved you in order to send you to heaven, you'd have already been in heaven. 
God saved you in order to use you for his purpose and to order to see other people come to the realization that Jesus Christ is Lord. So as we are about to conclude, my challenge here today is threefold. Number one, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, what is preventing you from being saved? What is stopping you from repenting of your sin and inviting Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life? Right now, the Bible says you are dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You say, well, I feel alive. My heart's beating and my mind's functioning. I'm not dead. No, spiritually, you're dead. Spiritually, you're dead. You are separated from God. And the only way you're going to be able to reconcile that relationship with God is through the bridge of the cross and the empty tomb, the gospel. Jesus paid his life. He gave his blood so that you can have life. Won't you receive him as Savior and Lord today? Next, the people that are saved here today, those that are Christians, those that have been uh, saved by the blood of Christ, the challenge for us is very simple. That it is up to us to, to go into the world and to share the good news, the gospel, faith and obedience, to live the life that we are to live. To live the life through the valleys and through the faith journey, through the mountains and the valleys, and to walk with him.